Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Happy New Year's. I'm Danielle Nishida and I'm here with Lori Hatton Boyd and Carson Lee. We've got our whole IRW Coffee Break team together today because we've got a bunch of guidance to discuss. On our last podcast, we discussed the final QI agreement, which we had believed would fulfill the government's annual holiday guidance dump, but we were sorely mistaken. Treasury and the IRS proceeded to release a flurry of guidance over the holiday break, including notices and announcements covering Section 1446F, 6050W, FATCO reporting, and reporting of digital assets. So we're going to spend this podcast running through the highlights of this guidance. So to kick us off, after releasing the final QI notice, the government released Notice 2023-8, which covered updates to 1446F for publicly traded partnerships. This notice covered three main topics. First, it addressed the long-awaited offshore exception. And while we did get some relief here, this is not exactly the relief that the industry was hoping for. So to provide a little bit of background, The industry has been clamoring for an offshore exception because the way the rules work currently is 1446F is a prove-out regime. So if you don't prove that either the payee is exempt or for some reason this transaction is out of scope of 1446F, it is presumed to be in scope. And for publicly traded partnerships, the way that you usually prove out that the transaction is out of scope is by the partnership issuing a qualified notice indicating that for one reason or another, 1446F won't apply. The problem is for foreign partnerships that have no trade or business in the United States, they likely aren't following these rules and won't know to issue this qualified notice. And it is a little unreasonable to assume that every foreign entity around the world is following U.S. guidance so that they can issue notices to get out of U.S. rules that really don't apply to them. And so the industry had been pushing for an offshore exception. And the government responded in this notice, but we were hoping to see an offshore exception that would exempt foreign entities unless there's a reason to know that they have effectively connected income. And instead, the government did partial relief. So what this notice does is it provides that if a broker is affecting a sale of an interest in a foreign traded entity and does not have actual knowledge that the entity is a publicly traded partnership, the broker can presume that the entity is not a publicly traded partnership for US tax purposes, which means a 1446F would not apply. That's all great because step one was trying to figure out when am I dealing with a publicly traded partnership. However, if you have knowledge that you're dealing with a publicly traded partnership, now the presumption is still going to be that 1446F applies unless an exception has been established generally through a qualified notice. So there is partial relief here and it is incredibly helpful because we had nothing prior to this, but it was a little disappointing that for known publicly traded partnerships, they are going to be presumed in scope. Yeah, Danielle, I think that's a really good point because we do know from prior identification exercises before this relief came out, a lot of brokers did identify some of these entities as having entered into withholding foreign partnership agreements, so they know their partnerships. Now, these partnerships very likely have no U.S. trade or business, no ECI, and to your point earlier, no idea that these rules exist. So they're not going to issue qualified notices, and then we're right back to the problem that we started with. And it really is unfortunate because these brokers are going to be penalized 
for attempting to get ahead and comply with the rules as drafted. Because we got this relief so late, they didn't have any knowledge that they didn't need to do this. And so now they've just made it worse. By doing their compliance, they've actually increased their compliance. And that's really unfortunate. Had we gotten this guidance earlier with the first round of guidance, they would have known in advance that they didn't have to do this exercise. And then the second change we saw in the notice was an update to the rules regarding reliance on late certification. So previously, you were not allowed to rely on a late certification with an affidavit. And the notice updates the rules for reliance on late withholding certificates to generally align with the rules for Chapter 3 and Chapter 4. So similar to Chapter 3 and 4, the rules state that if you receive a late certificate within 30 days, you can rely on it automatically without an affidavit. And then for anything after 30 days, an affidavit is required to rely on a late certification. That's the same as Chapter 3 and in Chapter 4. The different standard comes into play for forms received more than a year after payment. And under the notice for 1446 purposes, these rules only require documentary evidence for treaty claims, but not to support a claim of foreign status, which is different than what we saw in Chapter 3 and 4, where you're required to get documentary evidence either way. Now, the reason for this is under 1446, the W-8 without treaty relief is not going to generally result in a reduced rate of withholding. So they didn't include additional requirements because there's no real benefit to providing the W-8 without the treaty claim here. The one thing that's odd about this is they only provided this relief for publicly traded partnerships. Now, the notice is specifically addressing relief for publicly traded partnerships. And so talking about non-PTPs wouldn't have been in scope. And we also are going to see the need for late certifications come up more often with respect to PTPs. Having said that, if you're providing relief for late certifications, and it's possible that that might be beneficial for non-PTPs, I would have thought they would have done a consistent relief because it otherwise just makes the rules a lot more confusing when you have different documentation rules for PTPs versus non-PTPs for no real apparent reason. And then the final change we saw in the notice is with respect to short sales. The notice signaled that the government would be adding to the regulations an exception for publicly traded partnership shorts. So the PTP short exception would apply to a PTP short affected by a broker on behalf of a taxpayer that obtained the PTP interest from another party, including the broker or customer of the broker, for sale to the market. No withholding would be required on the sale to market of the PTP interest or on the later transfer by the taxpayer of an identical PTP interest to the original PTP interest owner. One thing to note is that this exception would not apply if on the date that the sale to market is entered on the books of the broker, the taxpayer either holds substantially identical property in an account with the broker, or the broker has actual knowledge that the taxpayer holds substantially identical property in an account with another broker. And the reason for this carve-out is Treasury and the IRS were concerned that in this limited case, there's a possibility that there'd be gain arising from the PTP short that's subject to tax under 868C8, and so they didn't want to carve out those instances. For the PTP shorts that do not qualify for this PTP exception, the date of the transfer for purposes of withholding and reporting on the PTP short would be the date on which the sale to market of the PTP interest is entered on the books of the broker. However, the broker would not be required to satisfy this withholding liability until a payment is actually made. And the IRS also closed out 2022 with the release of announcement 2023-2. 
That's right, Danielle. Uh, Announcement 2023-2 was released on December 23rd, and it delayed the implementation of certain broker reporting obligations with respect to crypto assets uh, found in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that passed in November 2021. The Jobs Act added several provisions to Section 6045 and 6045A of the code uh, that were designed to pull crypto assets and crypto service providers into the existing 1099B broker reporting regime. These new provisions were initially scheduled to start applying for 2022 returns due in the upcoming 2023 filing season. The announcement delayed any additional broker reporting that would have otherwise been required based on the provisions of the Jobs Act until final regulations under 6045 and 6045A are issued. Now it could be years before we see any final regulations, given that the IRS hasn't even released proposed regulations yet. But in any case, it's clear that these new provisions aren't going to apply for 2022 returns due in this upcoming filing season. That said, while it's far from clear, certain crypto transactions are arguably already subject to broker reporting under 6045 and 6045A, even without the provisions of the Jobs Act. The announcement itself notes that the existing regulations don't specifically address the extent to which crypto transactions are covered. And it also nods to this uncertainty when it states that brokers will not be required to file any additional returns or statements for crypto transactions based on the Jobs Act. So exactly what reporting is required for crypto transactions under the current rules is still an open question. And the government followed up that piece of good news with another piece of good news in notice 2023-10, which delayed the implementation of the lower de minimis thresholds under 6050W. So as a reminder, for third-party settlement organizations, the new much-reduced de minimis threshold of $600 per year with no limit on the number of transactions was scheduled to go into effect starting with reporting for the 2022 year, which meant immediately. Notice 2023-10 makes 2022 a transitional year for purposes of enforcing and administering the modified de minimis exception for third-party settlement organizations under 6050W. Therefore, the third-party settlement organizations will not be required to report payments made prior to January 1, 2023 that fall beneath the original de minimis thresholds, which was $20,000 of gross payments and 200 transactions per year. And so we've got a one-year reprieve on this shift. And the important thing is that allows the industry to continue to comment because we did see a last-minute effort and a little flurry within Congress to do something about this threshold because it's a massive shift from 20,000 and 200 transactions down to 600. So there was some discussion of finding some middle ground there. And that one year delay allows the possibility that that could happen. But again, we have to caution everyone that it is just right now a one year delay. And so there are massive systems changes and updates and customer notifications that all of these TPSOs were going to have to do in order to be ready. And so this gives us an additional year, but we don't know if anything's going to extend beyond that or whether we will get some relief. So TPSOs need to continue their efforts to be ready for this change. And one final thing we wanted to note is even though the de minimis threshold is going back to the original standard for 2022 reporting, If any backup withholding was performed, the de minimis threshold is irrelevant. You will still be required to report those transactions. Yeah, so I think what's important with that is, as you pointed out, we had that flurry of proposed uh, legislation that never made it into a final enacted bill that would raise that threshold. And I think part of this delay is because the IRS also needs to prepare for this influx of additional reporting 
we know that there was one impacted third party settlement organization that with that new threshold, the numbers reported was going from 50,000 to 12 million. So if you think of all of the TPSOs out there and if they have that same type of increase, that's a lot of reporting that the IRS has to be prepared to process. And then just the final notice that we received before the end of the year was notice 2023-11. This notice addresses the issue of FFIs in Model 1 jurisdictions that are still unable to obtain U.S. TINs for pre-existing U.S. reportable accounts. This notice points out that, you know, first of all, there's been six years of relief to date, but it also acknowledges that Treasury and the IRS understand that these issues persist partly because they're actually getting notified by U.S. citizens that live abroad that they're having trouble either opening bank accounts or they're being charged very high fees to maintain those accounts. Now, that could be to try to offset the reporting costs or maybe just to try to discourage them from opening the accounts at all because it's it's just a hassle for these FFIs. But that said, the relief is important because without it, these FFIs could be found in significant noncompliance, which could result in the removal of their GIN from the list, which then means they're treated as non-participating FFIs. So effectively, they just could not invest into the U.S. on behalf of any of their account holders. Unlike the previous relief that we've had, this notice actually is more restrictive. In a prior podcast, Daniel and I had discussed some relief that had been issued before where these impacted FFIs could use a series of codes in lieu of the US-10 that they couldn't get. So for example, nine twos or nine threes, and these codes correlated to the reason why the FFI could not obtain that US-10. But the use of those codes were not mandatory. So in this more recent relief, the use is actually mandatory. And the notice states that the reason for that is that Treasury and the IRS are trying to determine what, if any, type of permanent relief may be warranted. For now, though, this notice is going to cover years 2022, 2023, and 2024. So I said it was more restrictive. The other requirements are going to include that the FFI obtains and reports the date of birth for each individual or controlling person for whom the FFI has not been able to obtain that US-10. And then beginning this year, 2023, the FFI must request the TIN annually. They are also required to conduct an electronic search annually for any missing TIN that might actually be in the system. Interestingly, with that outreach, the notice indicates that it must be in the manner that the FFI believes that the person, the account holder, is most likely to receive it. And I, I say that's interesting because we've got the issue with hold mail accounts. I mean, here we've got an account where the FFI is legally, in many cases, unable to send mail or contact the account holder. So I don't know if they can meet this requirement by just keeping the information, waiting for the person to come in, which is how, you know, a hold mail account actually works. So I don't know how that's going to work with that. And then the communications to these persons must also provide information to certain U.S. government websites that contain relief procedures um, for certain U.S. citizens that are living abroad where they haven't been compliant with their taxes in the past. And then the FFI must have policies and procedures surrounding these requirements. And importantly, they have to document how they were actually followed. And then finally, just one of the more intriguing aspects of this relief that I haven't talked about yet is that the FFI must be in an eligible Model 1 jurisdiction. So to be an eligible Model 1 jurisdiction, the country has to encourage U.S. citizens to provide their U.S. TINs. The country has to take measures to enforce compliance whenever the U.S. competent authority identifies potential noncompliance. They must encourage FFIs to not discriminate against U.S. citizens that do not provide their U.S. TINs. 
which is odd because the IGA would mandate them to close the account when they can't get the US-10, so a little bit different from that. And then finally, if they're notified of any changes to the IGA or any type of exchange agreement, they'll take steps to conclude these changes. So the reason I say it's intriguing is I'm not quite sure how an FFI operating in this jurisdiction can get their their country to actually take on these requirements, but that will be left to be seen. And I think it's also worth noting that this relief applies only to Model 1 FFIs, so there's no love for the Model 2 FFIs, and it only applies to pre-existing accounts, which is expected. You wouldn't expect the government to provide relief for new accounts where the FFI had a little more control in how they craft their agreements and you know what they gathered up front. But I think it's notable there that if you have a change in circumstances where an entity wasn't originally reportable and suddenly there's a change in the entity status, so for example, they suddenly become a passive NFFE and you don't have the information necessary for their controlling persons, this relief wouldn't apply to you and you would still have a problem. Those are great points, Daniel. And that wraps up our summary of all the guidance we saw over the holiday break. So happy 2023, everyone. Thanks for joining us.